our reading can be found on page 1201, which is Hebrews chapter 1, page 1201. And I'll be reading the first four verses. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Thank you very much, Joe, for reading. Good evening, everyone. Please keep that open. Page... What page is it? 1,201. And let me pray. Lord Jesus, you know how our estimations of you fall far short of who you really are and your magnificence. Please be exalted in our eyes, in our hearts this evening as we consider your word to us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Well, there is a cliche that's often heard around Sunday school environments and which you've probably heard many times. The answer is always Jesus. You ask a question and a hand goes up. Jesus, says the boy or girl. And they're right, most of the time, unless the question is, who wants a biscuit? But they're, they're not normally fooled by that. It's always vaguely amusing, in a sort of cruel way, to see children move from that stage when they are very pleased with themselves, because they always get the right answer, to the stage where they realize the reason why, because the answer is basically always Jesus. And maybe you feel similar Things sometimes, like the child who's just becoming a bit older and starting to just think, well, is that it? The answer is always Jesus. Is that what you've got to tell me? Nothing more. Whatever the question, it's something about Jesus. Whatever the meeting, the focus is on Jesus. Whatever the, I don't know what you're going through in your life right now introduction, you think, oh, this is going to be relevant. It moves on to Jesus. Or so you feel. Like that child who once was delighted with Jesus, who is the answer to everything. But now starting to find it a bit too predictable, maybe far too much trouble, maybe not very relevant. The thing is, basically, the answer is always Jesus. And that is, and always will be, wonderful, or it should be. So the real question is, why do we forget that? Why do we drift away from that? If Jesus is the most magnificent and attractive proposition to our hearts and minds, once we have seen that, why would we ever drift away? 
because it does seem to happen. People see it, and then they drift. Maybe they get bored. They look for something more relevant and contemporary. Maybe it's some sin that just gets hold of them. Maybe it's some external pressure to give up on all this Christianity. And having once seemingly been delighted with Jesus, and all the other Christians are really encouraged by that person, they they turn away. Turn away from the one who really is the answer to basically every question and need. How could that happen? And of course, the next question is, could it happen to me? Well, that's what we start thinking about tonight as we start the book of Hebrews. Because if ever you were to wonder, how far back does that Sunday school cliche go? The answer is always Jesus. And how far back does that associated danger go that we would somehow uh, be disappointed and unsatisfied with that? Well, it's not a new thing. It goes back at least as far as the time when Hebrews was written. And we don't know who wrote the book. We don't know exactly who it was to. We don't know exactly when it was written. But sometime in the first century, it seems, clearly there was a group of Christians who were in that danger, just as much as we might be, of getting bored of what looks like a cliche, of drifting away from Jesus, who is the answer to everything. And so the book of Hebrews has a very simple strategy, which it relentlessly pursues. Keep your focus where it should be, on Jesus, to keep renewing your delight in him. And it starts with these wonderful verses, magnificent verses, which we have read this evening, and in which we see two big themes that will just continue on through the letter. Revelation, God making himself known to us, and salvation, how we can be friends with him. And what it wants to tell us is that in Jesus, we see God's supreme revelation, and in Jesus, we see our accomplished salvation. And if you really believe those things, your eyes will not drift from the Lord Jesus. So firstly, in Jesus, we see God's supreme revelation. Revelation, making himself known to us. See, ever since Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, there has been a massive communication gap between God and us. And even with all the clues in creation about who he is and what he is like, still, by ourselves, we would not know him. Now, we might think we could. I think people often think they could. We might think we could just imagine what God is like. And sure, other people would be wrong about that, but we'd probably get it right. That's astonishingly arrogant when you just reflect on it, even for a moment. I don't fully understand myself. How can I just say what God is going to be like? We need God to reveal himself 
to us. It's the only way we're ever going to get to know him. And supremely, says Hebrews, he has done it in Jesus. Verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. If you could sort of list them off in your head, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the other prophets, through angels in a burning bush on a mountain, through dreams, many times and many ways. And it was always wonderful. Those, those things were always fantastic. Often scary, but wonderful. They, they received words which were more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. God was making himself known to them. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That is Jesus. And it's even more wonderful. It marks out a new era in history. These last days. God's making himself known in Jesus. It brings to a climax everything that had gone before and launches this new era. Now that doesn't mean we put the Old Testament to one side and say we're done with that now because Jesus is better so we don't need the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't make that Old Testament revelation from God obsolete. He makes it better than it ever was before. And, and it was more precious than gold. But now, as we read it in the light of Jesus, we do so with fuller understanding, and we should do it with more excitement. You, we carry on through Hebrews. You can see that it's, that is exactly what the author of Hebrews did when he picked up his Old Testament and read back over passages. You can almost see that thought process of, wow, I thought I understood this before. I did understand it, but only in part, it turns out. Now I read it and, wow! I don't know if you've ever thought of the Old Testament that way, as a tool to keep your eyes from wandering away from Jesus, as a tool to keep your excitement up about Jesus. Ever thought about it like that? You're getting bored with Christian things? Have you ever read the Old Testament? And really worked at it. It is tremendously exciting. It will help you see how Jesus is God's supreme revelation. And you just carry on here in Hebrews. Looking what is said about Jesus. Which is actually picking up all sorts of Old Testament language. He is God's son. He is appointed heir of all things. The universe is all for him. Which makes sense because it was also all made through him. He is the radiance of God's glory. Wow! Do you want to see God's splendor? His brilliance? You look at Jesus, you might think you wouldn't be able to see God's splendor and glory, like trying to stare directly at the sun, but you can in Jesus. You look at Jesus. You see the radiance of God's glory. And you just reflect on those words. They're, they're so profound, aren't they? You, you, you start thinking, well, radiance of God's glory. So he's, he's different from the Father, but he's of the same substance somehow. You, you see that train of thought going off. 
It all just underlines how in terms of God revealing himself, no one, nothing, is going to come close to Jesus. He's in a completely separate category there. So you once saw clouds and heard a trumpet blast on a mountain. Great. You've now got Jesus. You once had the temple. Fantastic. You've now got Jesus. The radiance of God's glory. That's better. By miles. Don't go back to some sort of temple, therefore. Us in our times, don't get overly enchanted by things that might conjure up a sense of the numinous, that kind of phrase you sometimes hear. Whether it's candles or smells or art or architecture, those things are not saying they can't be used and usefully used. You don't get captivated just by them in and of themselves. Just be careful how they're being used. They don't cause your eyes to move away from Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory. Goes on, he's the exact representation of his being. That's like a stamp where the market leaves is the exact impression of what was on the stamp. Jesus is the very stamp of God's being. His nature. So you want to see God's holiness, God's love, God's justice, God's whatever. You look at Jesus and you see it perfectly. He is God's supreme revelation. You want to know God, you must pay attention to Jesus. There has never been anyone like this who has mediated God's message, who has mediated God to people like Jesus, as Hebrews will go on, not angels, not Moses, no one has come close to him. This is where cults are always so wicked. Um, there's a documentary on recently about David Koresh and the, the cult that led to the Waco siege, or you might think of the Moonies or various other cults that there are. They always get people to look at the leader of the cult and in the end, away from Jesus. They don't tend to denounce Jesus outright. Instead, they say, yes, Jesus, fantastic, but now you need to look at me. Yes, Jesus made God known, but to continue knowing God's will, you now need to look at me. No. Jesus is God's supreme revelation. Never take your eyes off him in favor of another. Ah, well, you're saying, I wouldn't do that. It's a good example, but it's an example of something I wouldn't do. Well, it can be a danger with a favorite preacher or a particular Christian leader. And something happens, they move, you move. They fall for some reason, through some sin. And you find yourself drifting because actually it, it wasn't so much about Jesus as it was about that person. No one will ever come close in revealing God to us like Jesus does. No one. No one. So maybe people will see angels here and there. Maybe it's quite likely Hebrews about to say they're sent as ministering spirits to us. Maybe people have seen Mary appear at various times. I don't know. 
Maybe someone might have a word from the Lord for me this evening that I need to pay attention to. And those things, if they happen, great. But they're not to be chased after and obsessed about in such a way that it would cause me to move my eyes, my attention from the Lord Jesus, in whom we have a revelation which is supreme and decisive, final, perfect. Don't drift away from him. Some people, I think, are sometimes in danger of drifting because actually they don't, they don't like clarity. They prefer mystery. Quite a lot of people seem to like mystery. Don't get me wrong. God is still beyond our full understanding. We'll, we'll spend an eternity adoring him and we'll never plumb the depths. So there is mystery there in that sense. But some see, some people, I think, seem to like mystery so much that they, they start to disdain what God has actually made clear. All they want is mystery and silence. Nothing more. And in a desire to occupy a space of mystery, there is a danger you end up drifting away from what has been clearly spoken. Others might drift from what God has spoken in Jesus because they never stop asking their own questions, which may be heartfelt, raw, questions, then never stop asking them to actually listen to what has been said. And, and, and so they conclude that God is silent to their questions. And therefore they conclude he is a silent God. He doesn't speak. Well, Hebrews is clear. God isn't silent. It just may be that we're not listening to what he said to us in Jesus. Sometimes we might treat God a little bit like he's giving a press conference and we're a bunch of hostile journalists and we're just asking our questions relentlessly, never pausing to listen to the message that's trying to be got across. And the thing is, when we pay attention to Jesus, and we can always do that, we can always do that, because we have the Bible, we have the Spirit, we can always pay attention to the revelation that's been given in Jesus. When we do that and we start to recall his life, and maybe the loud prayers which he offered up in his suffering, and his particular path of suffering to glory, and the obedience that he learned, the, the, the perfection that was wrought in him through obedience, Actually, we may find there are some answers to those questions we were asking if we just stopped asking them for a moment. God is not silent, but he may not have spoken precisely to your agenda. There's another danger, I think, for people to drift in academia, which is a relevant thing for us in Cambridge area. It can be a place where people lose focus and drift. Now, we need good people in theology departments and in theological colleges. We need good people doing 
theology degrees and PhDs and so on. But there are dangers there. Because how do you gain entry into that world of academia? You write something new. Whereas the fundamental task of the church is to preserve and pass on what is old, the revelation that has been given in Jesus Christ. Now, there are challenges into how we speak that message afresh into each new generation, but the message, in essence, is not to change. So for those people going into that environment, we really need to love and support them. Make sure they're well supported in a church family. Sometimes we may think, well, I'm not clever enough to support such a person. You, you are. Just pick up the Bible and say something obvious from it every now and again. It will be of great help. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. That is, the whole universe keeps going because of him. That's not just that he holds it together like cement holds together a structure of bricks. He's sustaining it in the sense that he's moving it forward to its goal, which is a new creation, peopled by a redeemed children of God. And that's why that leads into our next point as we go through the text, that in Jesus we see our accomplished salvation. At the end of verse 3 there. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. It's an interesting idea that purification, being clean, not being clean. I think it's really helpful for understanding the problem of sin. That because of our sin, because of what we do and think and say and fail to do, it's like we're dirty in the sight of God. You just imagine every bit of thought or cruel word that just leaves its stain on you. And maybe you don't need to think back beyond the start of this service to find your last unloving thought that you had. And we're so prone to thinking that in some way we can clean ourselves up. For God. Even those of us who've heard the gospel a million times, you know, you just take that and you'll know what I mean. This will come into your head immediately when I say that one sin that you particularly struggle with. How easy it is to think that if you manage to go one day without falling into that sin, it somehow cleanses you from the previous day's transgression. Very easy to think like that, isn't it? But that's like a child playing football. Going outside, falling over again and again, getting muddy and muddier, comes inside for a drink, goes outside again but doesn't fall over, and then comes back inside and says, well, there you are, I must be clean now. That would make no sense. However much devotion we may have felt in our hearts as we've been singing of Jesus exalted, and as we've prayed, it doesn't cleanse you from the stain of that unloving thought you might have had. 
at another point this evening. Just gives you a sense of our helplessness over sin, doesn't it? This idea of clean and unclean. Sin makes you dirty. And that doesn't go away by just doing something that doesn't make you dirty. God, if you, if you want to think of it this way, existing in eternity, outside of time, beyond time, everything you ever do is, in a sense, always present before him. So you've got a big problem there, which we can't do anything about. But it says here, Jesus has provided purification for sins. He's done it, and, it's, and it lasts. That's amazing. His blood spilt to pay the punishment that we deserve, and we are washed clean. And that lasts. How is that? Well, because he's he died on the cross, he rose again, he was exalted into that eternal realm. And there he is as our high priest in eternity, whose sacrifice of himself therefore covers everything that we have done or could do. In him, we are spotlessly clean. So why would you ever go back to DIY religion in this realm? Don't have your eyes diverted from Jesus by do-it-yourself religion. He has purified you and he sat down, which means the work is finished. You don't get distracted by anything that locates your ongoing good relationship with God in some kind of ritual. In Christ, you are clean as you confess your sins. You are clean before you take bread and wine. How tempting it is to look to something tangible that we do within our control as a way of managing our own guilt, which is, of course, just a ticket to going on living a life of unrepentance. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. He is the supreme revelation of God. And in him we see our accomplished salvation. And he is the one who is guiding us home. And if you're looking for something more relevant, if you're thinking through this sermon, well, yes, I, I know all of this, and I've got this eternal perspective, it's just the next year that I'm worried about. Well, then just remember the relevance of this, of this next year or this next term or whatever is how it fits into Jesus' plan to get you from here to that final destination, that future city. You remember that. And then pay attention to Jesus and consider the path that he took to get from here to there. And then you will just start to see, maybe not fully, not in every specific detail, but something of how God is using your circumstances to effect a path that follows your saviors. And then, funnily enough, you will start to realize 
with renewed delight. Do you know what? Jesus is always the answer. And that is wonderful. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, to whom has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, other than to you? You are exalted and you are supreme. And we thank you and we bless your name. And we pray as we prayed at the start that you would be exalted in our eyes, in our hearts. Help us to keep our focus on you. All through this next week, and indeed for as many days as you've given us, before we see you face to face. Pray this for your glory. Amen.